They can never lose the WBC title no matter what weight class they go to. Huh? Brazil Lomachenko. They can never nah, lose it. Nah. Unless they lose it. They can't lose it. They win a fight, they can become undisputed, but they can never that's, lose it. That's figurative. Oh, no, no, no. We got to talk to Al. Top rank got some shit going on. Matter of fact, boxing on some bullshit. Oh, I came at the perfect time. At the perfect goddamn time. At the perfect goddamn time. So, you already know. I'm just trying to figure out how you do your shit at 160. But when we do step in this ring, this ain't wrestling. This ain't the WWE. So today I really wanted to talk about Josh Warrington. Surprisingly, this is my third episode on Josh Warrington for a number of reasons, but firstly because I think he's an interesting case. And secondly, even more important, if you look at the thread of the previous two episodes, my underlying suspicion is this. Hearn was always going to derail Josh Warrington's career. As soon as he left Frank Warren, he fell into what I call the, the Booker T problem. And for those of you who are wrestling fans, you understand that Booker T was the five-time WCW champion. Fantastic wrestler, consummate pro, respected by his peers, right? But he was one of the top guys in WCW. And in WWE, they jobbed him in the beginning because they wanted to let him know that he was part of the losing team because obviously the WWE took over the WCW. And so Booker T had years of being a figure of fun and these sorts of things until he had proven himself enough that he could ascend to the top of the ladder. And now you see he's a Hall of Famer, he's a respected commentator in the WWE. But many of those former WCW guys were treated in that way. And they were humiliated. Because that's how it always is. Like when you come into something, and especially if you're one of the guys that left, you're always going to get punished. And in this case, it was Josh Warrington that had to pay the price. And I know a lot of people say this is conspiratorial. I've been in this sport long enough to know there are ways you can make it look like an accident, even though you were probably behind it from the start. And it's a lesson for Warrington's team. The signs were there. The hints were given. The warnings were given. They chose to ignore them. It was hubris on their part. But had they had that third eye, they would have seen that this this whole thing was a setup. And as I probably go through the episode, I hopefully I'll make it clearer how we ended up with Warrington losing and what that means. But ultimately, the real winner in all of this will be Eddie Hearn because Eddie Hearn wins in all situations. So let's just take a quick look at how we got to Saturday, February the 13th. So Josh Warrington last fought, I think it was October 2019, and remember, he fought on the Frank Warren show. And it was, I think it was Sofiane Tukut. Never know how to say his surname. But it was a just a run-of-the-mill defense. It might have been a voluntary. But it was just a run-of-the-mill defense. And after that fight, he parted ways with Frank and signed with Matchroom again. Now, October 2019, until now, Josh has kind of been off the grid. It's, it's his way. He's not a social media guy. He's not a massive fan of things like IFL and so forth. He prefers to do his talking in the ring. And when you saw him move to Matchroom, 
a lot of boxing fans said, okay, cool, he's gone to cash out. Eddie will get him the big fights. Eddie's got the links across the, you know, on both sides of the Atlantic. He can make things happen. And you can see the logic of it. But those who know Eddie well, and I remember Eddie from his earlier days, he's quite vindictive. And he hints at this when he says, if I don't have your 100% confidence, you don't get the 100% from me. So you wonder how he reconciles the fact that someone left him to go and win titles and do bigger things and then came back when he saw what the DAZN money was doing. And if I'm Eddie Hearn, I'm looking at that going, you're just here for the money. You're not here because you love me. You're here for the money. Cool. If you're here for the money, I'm going to make you earn the money. So you have this period of inactivity. COVID happens and Josh is a stadium guy. Josh makes his money from selling out the first direct arena in Leeds or Ellen Road. That's how Josh makes his money. He's not quite pay-per-view unless you got him the right dance partner. But he's vanquished everyone who the British fans would identify in his weight class. So there's no one there, really, unless he can look for a Lomachenko fight. But the weight classes didn't line up, so that wasn't possible. So for the time that the stadiums were close to fans, Josh couldn't make his money. It was hard to get him on TV because Josh was a high six-figure, low seven-figure guy based on what he had achieved. So what do you do? You leave him until you can find an avenue to get him back on. And so Warrington's a big enough name to, to trigger your 2021 coverage. I don't imagine he was paid fantastically well, but they probably pitched it as, look, it's a tune-up fight. You know, This is just a moving around money. But it's a chance to get yourself seen before they let fans in and then we'll get you in for the big stadium fights, right? So you're from 50 quid in the hope of making 5,000 down the line. It's understandable. It's how boxing generally works. But don't underestimate that inactivity. Go back throughout the episodes. Everything I've done since this lockdown happened and I warned people, the first fight you take coming back should not be with a puncher and should definitely not be with a body puncher. Because you have to learn. All those systems your body builds up, that intuitive ability to ride shots, absorb shots, take shots, the resistance to the pain and the discomfort, the loss of timing, your, your ring smarts, your ring nows, things that you lose because your brain says, we haven't done this for what? 14, 15 months? We have not done this. So your brain turns everything off and it takes a while to turn these things back on. It's not instantaneous as much as people like to tell you that. You know, ticking over is ticking over, but that doesn't make you fight ready. So the first fight you have back has to be a bit soft. Not, not a walkover job, but someone who you know is not going to hurt you. But will give you enough trouble that you can reawaken your fight instincts. That's what you're looking for. So how the hell did we end up with Mauricio Lara? Can somebody explain that to me? Anyone? Can someone explain how on earth you end up with Mauricio Lara? So when I look at Lara, it's tricky because a lot of it is done with the benefit of hindsight. We know how the movie ended, so now we go back and look at the cast of characters. But Lara was a strange choice, however you want to slice and dice this. Number one, why are you flying someone over from Mexico during a pandemic? So you've got to fly them in their team business class, so that's going to stack up the costs. Then you've got to house them here while they 
quarantine or whatever the hell they had to do. Then there's obviously the cost of testing and hosting them. And there's a purse required because you're not leaving Latin America if it doesn't make sense economically because Mexico is a strong economy. You can make a good living boxing in Mexico, which is why a lot of guys do that. So it felt like a strange choice bringing someone all the way over. There was a whole hoo-ha about his ranking at the time. I ignore that because corruption is corruption and anyone can get bought a ranking. That's not me revealing anything secret. That's the truth. So Lara looks strange from that perspective. If you look at who you could have picked in this country, and I'm just picking names, let's, let's park where their activity level is for now. Jazza Dickens, one of the McDonald twins, was always available. You know, Galahad, if you really wanted it, I'm sure you could have dug up someone, even like a Lee Wood, to say, look, you can jump in here, Reese Mould. You could have put Josh in with a lot of people. And I know people say, but that wouldn't have sold the fight. We didn't know Lara. I'd rather have had a Ryan Walsh in there than a Lara in terms of name brand value and name recognition. So then you're looking at this Lara and you, you start to scroll down his record. He loses on his debut. Okay, in Mexico, that's not a big deal because they start really young. So you've got a 17-year-old kid or maybe a 16-year-old kid jumping in with a grown man. Well, maturity is a big deal at that point. Maybe he was in over his head and he lost on points. Lost further on in his career, but it's Mexico. <laughs> These guys live for this, right? But there are a lot of KOs and TKOs and stuff where you're thinking, this is a young man knocking people out. And we know Mexicans are tough. We know they're technical, so these are well-won knockouts. You know, So you're looking at this going, I'm not saying this guy's world-class, I'm saying that there are a whole number of problems you're going to have with this guy. And you're, there's no video footage to, to readily find on him. So what you're now doing is transposing. Well, if he's a Mexican boxer, there's going to be a lot of body work. There's going to be a lot of left hooks. There's going to be a lot of uppercut. You, the, the Mexican style is going to be a factor here. He's going to be good on the inside, you know, which generally Warrington doesn't box people who are good on the inside. So all these things start to become a factor. But you still think Warrington's got the class because Warrington's got, what, eight years on him? He's won a world title. He's had big fights. You think Warrington's got this. But what's in the back of your head is, is the inactivity going to catch up? Are all those weaknesses that inactivity exposes, are they going to be found out? When you hear Sean O'Hagan talk about, we made little changes to how he's training and stuff, that starts to worry me. It's not the time. Like When you're trying to find your feet, you don't want to be trying new stuff. So all these things start to go, Josh should win, but... Why have they got this Lara guy over? Mm. Uh, it all feels a bit fishy to me. But I'm, I'm conspiratorial by nature. But it all feels a bit fishy considering you could have plucked anyone from the UK to take this fight. So then we've got to turn and go, okay, so in Team Warrington, who thought this would be a good idea and why? Did they present the guys they wanted to fight or did Eddie present the guys? And if Eddie did, did he hide the snake in the grass under a pile of different names. Did he say, look, here are your options. You fight Dogbo. You fight Gary Russell Jr. You fight Leo Santa Cruz. I don't know. Did he give him a, a list of names that were going to be challenging on the way back and then go, oh, we've got this kid in Mexico called Mauricio Lara. You know, 
22 year old kid. He's had a few fights in Mexico, put a few people down, but he hasn't he hasn't beaten up on anyone that we'd recognize. So he's not at that level. Do you hide him in there? Hide him in plain sight and go, you guys pick. But really, it's a Hobson's choice, right? Because you're going to pick Lara, essentially. The other guys, you're like, Ugh, not this, we're not ready for that yet. And definitely not without the Leeds fans. So was that just clever, in, clever insertion of the opponent that you wanted him to fight? And if so, what were the reasons? But Team Warrington should have seen through this and said, we want a British opponent, we want someone we're familiar with, and we want someone that we know isn't going to damage Josh so he can iron out the kinks in his armour. That's what I'm saying to my guy, if I've got his best interests at heart. Never have the hubris to believe your guy is unbreakable, especially if he's been inactive. Go through the process, let him get his reps in. He needed to get his reps in before he started talking about Galahad or the top guys in the division, the Gary Russell Juniors and so forth. We all knew that. Because we've seen people, come on man, we've seen these guys come back and look lackluster. The lockdown's taken a lot out of people's careers. And you have to come back with caution. I don't think Josh did in this case. And it's disappointing to see that a team as experienced as Warrington's team seemingly dropped the ball on this one. They just didn't, they either didn't do their research or they didn't push their agenda hard enough and they should have done. And Josh has paid a heavy, heavy price for this. Drop the belt. Maybe he shouldn't have dropped the belt on reflection, but he dropped the belt and he lost. He's in the wilderness now. He's in that who needs him club. Because his team didn't do what they were supposed to do. But it's a team he loves and it's a team he's close to and they've seen him right so far. So we'll just call this a, a blip. And I'm not going to be here saying, you know, they screwed up or whatever. It, it's one of these things that happen sometimes. You believe in your guy so much that it blinds you to the potential risks and realities of taking on someone. So you end up with this really strange fight on Saturday night. That main event was very strange because Josh, Josh wasn't below his normal level. Let's be absolutely clear about this. If you look at Josh Warrington through the first quarter of a fight, Generally, if he, when he does a 12-rounder, he was on pace. He was busier than he was against Galahad. He was roughly as busy as he was against Selby. He wasn't as busy as he was against Frampton. But if you remember in the Frampton fight, he had him going in a couple of the rounds. So there were the, the flurries that accelerated his activity. But if you benchmark Warrington's performance against what he's capable of, don't get blinded by the Frampton fight because that's a one-off. When you see the numbers, the number of effective moves in and around 170 to 190, maybe 200 if he's good, the number of punches thrown, around about 50. It's all about the same. Josh didn't, he, if he looks back on that, for all the moves he did, the classic Warrington stuff, he did everything. Watch the thing without the commentary because the commentary misdirects you. It makes you think Warrington's performing below his best. He's not. He absolutely isn't. So then we ask the question, so why did it feel like he wasn't his normal self? Sky were too afraid to give Mauricio Lara credit 
For the whole fight, they went through the assumption that Warrington could weather the storm and take this guy out. But there was a defining moment in this fight, and go back and watch it and you'll see it. I think it might have been round four at the beginning. Warrington hits him with a shot. And Mauricio Lara cranks his neck. Like, you know in the old Kung Fu films, when Bruce Lee would hit him with like a triple kick, and I think it was Bolo Jung would just stand there, look at him, and just crank his neck, and you'd hear all the vertebrae popping. You know, and then he'd just get back to smacking the crap out of him. He did that. And for someone to do that in the middle of a fight shows that they're comfortable. You're four rounds in with Josh Warrington, and you're comfortable. That was worrying to see. Now, if we go back to talking about what Mauricio Lara did well, because he did a lot of things well. What he was able to do, and I don't know who the taller man was in that fight. Maybe it was Lara, maybe it was Warrington. Maybe it could have been even, actually. But Lara definitely had the longer arms, and he made the most of his reach. They weren't giving him credit for this, but his manipulation of distance, his judgment of where Warrington was, was elite level. He always knew where the distance was, and based on that calculation, he knew what the best punch to throw was. He had Warrington worried when he was throwing those left uppercuts. You know, Warrington's got the standard two hands up. And so, Lara would throw the jab, and Warrington would block it with his arm. And then, the uppercut would come through the middle, and Warrington was like, God, what do I do about this? And after a while, it forced Warrington to retreat because he couldn't stay there on the inside because the shots were coming up the middle. And it was, you could see Lara was so used to these situations. And maybe it's the legacy of a tough education in boxing, the fact that this guy turned pro at 17. And remember, a 22-year-old guy, and he's already, what, 25 fights in at 22 years old? How many Brits do you think would have that kind of record? Hardly any. Like, they're guys, I mean, who were 27, 28, 29 with that number of fights. And that points to another issue which we'll touch on later. But Lara came with that, I call it the classic Mexican style. He had that kind of Marquezness to him, in terms of Juan Manuel Marquez, of flicking the jab and shooting that little left uppercut. I mean, there may be a, a left hook, then a right uppercut, and then finish with a right hook. And Warrington was bamboozled by this because he was getting hit in ways that Frampton couldn't do, Selby couldn't do, and Galahad couldn't do. You know, we call Selby and Galahad pretty slick boxers, don't we? Oh my God, they're so slick and elusive. But they're pretty vanilla. In terms of the punches they throw, they're pretty vanilla. They like to hop in and out and they move around a lot and they, they posture a lot, yeah. But that, that nuts and bolts, the basics, the... The fundamentals of boxing, the ability to hit your opponent more than they hit you. Warrington hadn't seen anything like Lara. We hadn't seen anything like Lara. Watch the fight with the sound down and you tell me who the world champion is. You tell me who's got the scalps. Lara looked like the boss in that fight if you turn the commentary off. You know... Remember, in round three, which is around before Warrington got put down, and he was throwing 66 punches, that puts him 
roundabout where he normally is when he feels good. So it wasn't like he wasn't throwing. It was just that Lara had an answer for everything. Lara was a dominant guy, and I think once Warrington felt that power, he knew he couldn't stay on the inside because everything was landing. There was a bit in the first round where Lara threw a jab and he threw a, a palm-down right hook. So for the coaches there, you'll know what I mean. He threw the palm-down right hook and followed it up with a straight right. And when he did that, I just said, this guy's got punch variety already. I don't think Warrington's style is made for this because he's already looking at coming around the corner. He's already looking at coming up the middle. Having two hands up isn't going to help you. You've got to have head movement. You've got to be slick in defense. And you've, you've got to be able to counter quickly. Frampton didn't give him that problem. And you wonder if Frampton had seen better days when he fought him. We know for sure Selby had seen better days. The Galahad fight, Styles make fights. I think Warrington's, I mean, Warrington's ideally suited to beat Galahad because Galahad doesn't work hard enough, in my opinion. Lara does. Jesus, does Lara work hard. And that's what you saw in that fight. So the first three rounds for me were Lara, were Lara establishing where the power was and forcing Warrington into his kind of fight. Lara wanted it to be less technical. Well, oh no, no, let me rephrase that. Sorry, that was my fault. Lara wanted it to be less of a shootout at range. He wanted it to be an exchange of combinations. He wanted to be on the inside. He wanted to be in the trenches because that's what he's grown up doing. My worry in this fight was when Adam Smith said Navarrete calls Lara the hardest puncher he's been in the ring with sparring or fighting. And that worried me because I know Navarrete had been in with Isaac Dogbo and Isaac can punch. He can really, really punch. So now you're dealing with a guy with elite level power. And you're thinking, is this another Bradis Prescott? Or is this another Golovkin? Because he had those Golovkin-like traits if you watch the fight. He backed his chin, he backed his power, and he backed his stamina. Which is no surprise considering, and here's another thing where I'd be surprised. Why would you get a guy from Mexico City? Why? Here's, here's the context you want to put Mexico City in. There was a request to expunge all the world records made in the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City because they're all done at altitude. So Mexico City sits about 7,500 feet above sea level. That's where Lara lives. Imagine the engine this kid's got. Imagine the lung capacity this kid's got. And he gets to fight Josh Warrington at sea level. That's a walk in the park for someone like him. Why did his team think of all of these things and say, actually, maybe we don't want to fight a Mexican with ridiculous stamina who's been more active than we have? Hmm? Very simple question. Why would someone pick him as an opponent with all those things to be true? Interesting question. But the brutal truth is, Lara had that power that Warrington hadn't faced in his career. He hadn't faced that level of boxing IQ. And people say this guy looked clumsy and amateurish. No, he didn't. He was clever. He knew what he could do. And he made sure the fight was happening in places where he could do what he wanted to do. There was a point where Adam Smith said, 
oh, Lara with his unusual angles. And I was like, what do you want him to do? Just stand in front of Josh? No. And that was what was confusing Josh. Josh couldn't understand why the guy wasn't there to be hit like Frampton had been, like Selby had been. And so two things came together. The effect of the power and Josh's realisation that he might not be able to hurt this guy because he was happy to stand and trade with Josh. Wasn't wobbled once. Wasn't affected by those punches. And like I said, when he cranked that neck, you got the feeling that there's only one winner in this. So it was sad to see that Josh had a perforated eardrum, his jaw was cracked, and his shoulder was damaged in this fight. That's a heavy price to pay against a 22-year-old. The heavy price to pay. No belt. No undefeated record. You're battered and bruised. You're probably out for the next five or six months. Then what? That's what your team is supposed to protect you from. So at this point, most people have an inquest. And when they see these big outcomes, they assume that there are big causes. I just don't think there are. I think it's loads of little things. I think it's the inactivity. That's one of them for sure. I think it's also the fact that they underestimated who Lara was. They didn't look at the the components that made him up. You know, they were put into a corner. Probably at the best time to want to fight. You don't have your crowd with you. It's not familiar. You didn't get the opportunity to to have that tune-up fight before you took on a fight like this. All of these elements come together at the right time and the lack of guidance in the corner is also a big factor. They should have known. I think Josh just needed to come back and say, this guy punches harder than anyone I've been in the ring with. And then it's Sean O'Hagan's job to go, here's how you take that power away from him. They didn't have a clue. So you put all of that together, that's how you lose a boxing bout. It's a team effort. In success, it's a team effort. In failure, it's a team effort. And it was a a bad day in the office for that team all around. And Josh sustained so much damage that that's, that's affected him. In the same way that the Santa Cruz defeat seemed to affect Carl Frampton. You don't come out of these situations the same man. And now the pressure's really on to see who does he come back against and how does he come back. But let's broaden it out and let's let's look at the wider context in which this fight happened. There's a worrying trend, and it's in the amateurs as well as the pros, of inactivity. Our guys don't fight enough. It takes so long for these kids to get to 50 bouts, to 70 bouts. Not like the old days. You should be able to rack it up 15, 20 bouts a season. So you only need about four good years in the amateurs before you've got the experience in theory, but that's not happening. And if you look at what's happening in the pro game, our guys are not getting the number of fights. So Lara's got, what, 25 fights at 22 years old? So you can imagine by the time he gets to 30, if he's still boxing, he'll be in the 40s, if not the 50s. Canelo's in the 50s, right? And Canelo's 30. What's Pacquiao? Pacquiao's on ridiculous numbers. Pacquiao's had 70-odd bouts, maybe 80. He's still going at a top level. Now look at Warrington. What's Warrington? 30, 31 bouts at 30 years old? That's embarrassing. Salby was about that number at 34. Frampton was about that number at 33. Our guys don't fight enough. 
You know, DeGale didn't get to 35 bouts. Groves didn't get to 35, I don't think. I'm just going off the top of my head here. Froch didn't get to 40. And we call him like one of our leading guys. British boxers don't fight enough. They don't fight enough because everything's about money. And if it doesn't make sense, you don't do anything. So it's all this short-termist thinking. Whereas I think in Mexico and definitely in the States, they understand that you need those kind of 10 fights off the radar. And a prime example of this is Jerome Ennis. Jerome Ennis has probably been a pro the same length of time as Conor Ben. The world doesn't know who Jerome Ennis is in the way they know who Conor Ben is. But I tell you what, put those two in a ring now, there's only one winner. Why? Because Jerome Ennis has had those right, those right learning fights, those right kind of fights, the fights that you need when you fight at the top level. Because you get to make all your mistakes in these fights here, which you will never make in a world title fight. That's why in Britain they talk about our world champions still learning. Anthony Joshua is still learning. Really? And that's no shots to AJ because I think AJ understands that, you know, it's about continuous development. Fine, I get that. But for us to keep saying he's only a baby, he's still learning on the job. No, no, no. We say that because our guys do not fight enough. Look, look, I'm looking at a guy I know really well, Adam Martin, and I'm saying, Adam just wants to get fights for Jermaine. Not for selfish financial reasons, but he understands the game. The more fights Jermaine has, the better he gets. Promoters don't think that way. It's all about this show has to make sense. Then the next show has to make sense. No one has a long-term strategy. I put Steve Goodwin in that. Lionel Sadofi should have had more fights. Brad Paul should have had more fights. All of these guys should have had more fights. And there may be good reasons. And I know Steve will say, no, no, there are reasons why. Fair enough. But the, the end result is the same thing. These guys have not had enough fights to be considering themselves ever reaching world level. You need those fights because you've got to make your mistakes. You've got to get your reps in. And relative to world championship fights, these are low intensity reps. But you need them. Look, that's how many how many Brits do we know who are in the 40s, 50s, 60s in terms of bouts? We don't have many of them. So what ends up is these guys end up just ticking over, sparring, getting lumps punched out of themselves with no end goal in sight. I don't know what it's going to take, and maybe the lack of audience should be forcing these guys to to flood their cards. I wish TV companies would understand that. You've got to flood your cards because when the fans do come back, you want guys who are good. Guys who are going to win belts and hang on to them for six, seven, eight, nine defenses. That's how you make your money back. You know, you can't keep doing what Eddie wants to do. And if you look at what Eddie's plan is, it's let me just get them into position for a world title as quickly as possible, do it on pay-per-view, win a belt, and then I'll, I'll worry about the future after that. Build your guys. Build Conor Ben. Conor Ben should have been fighting every month for the last four years. O'Hara Davis should be fighting every month. Yard should get back to that going, you know what, let me have a few fights, man. Let me, let me hone my craft. Think about this. We're hearing about Canelo, Canelo saying, I might fight four times this year. And we've got guys talking about, ah, I need a 12-week camp. And Canelo's just cracking on. 
because he understands what it's like to fight multiple times a year because he's done it. Inactivity is a massive problem in this country. I don't know how you solve it, but someone has to solve it. You know, we're talking Archie Sharp fighting for world titles. Archie Sharp, when's the last time you saw Archie Sharp in the ring? He needs, give Archie Sharp five fights in quick succession. Let him make mistakes. Let him go, okay, I need to work on this. I need to work on that. He could be a world champion. He could win a belt, but would he hold on to it against seven or eight different styles in a row? I don't know. Because we haven't seen him against seven or eight different styles in a row. And this comes down to the training as well. Who's behind these guys? We're not educating boxers. In this country, we don't educate boxers. This is what we do. We give them a little bit of knowledge so that they can fight the person in front of them. We never give them the big picture because the big fear is if you teach them everything you know, they'll leave you for someone else. And when it's your living, you can't let that happen because... You can't spend five years investing in someone and then just when they start popping off, they leave you. That doesn't make sense. And I don't know what that means. Maybe you've got to get better contracts for trainers. I don't know. But until we incentivize trainers to teach, we're never going to get those elite level guys we deserve. The second thing is trainers living in silos. If you train guys in the peacock, you don't go over to someone else's gym and talk boxing. Our trainers never talk boxing with each other, which is a shame. You know, I look at guys, like people I know personally with great boxing brains. I put Mark Rygate in that category. The guy knows, he's an encyclopedia of the stuff. Eddie Lamb and, you know, I don't see young trainers going to these guys and picking their brains, but these guys know so much. Guys who really know the game, like those guys. Chris Smedley's another guy I put in that bracket. I've got a lot of respect for him. Pat Barrett, I know Zelfa didn't perform too well, but Pat Barrett's a hell of a trainer. He'll get you thinking the right way. But these guys never seem to come together, sit down, have food, and talk boxing. So in British boxing, the knowledge never gets shared out because everyone's so protective of their secrets, as if they've got the secret source that no one else has, which isn't true, come on. You're watching stuff on YouTube and then teaching your fighter that stuff. We know what you're doing. <laughs> Trainers need to just grow up and realize that the only people they're hurting are their fighters because their fighters end up being limited. You know, look at McCracken. What the hell does McCracken really know about teaching styles? Nothing. He knows that. McCracken's just a strength and fitness guy does nothing no added value in his boxes that's why fury left him that's why john o'donnell couldn't deal with him because he couldn't add any sauce he couldn't add any spice to what these guys were doing that's the sad reality of where we are in boxing warrington's just let down by the fact that sean o'hagan knows one thing they seem to just know one thing and that's to box in that northern style that could have been martin murray in there which is a shame there's no spice there's no creativity more importantly there's no decision making that's the problem Warrington couldn't make decisions on his own in that ring and he paid a heavy price and I guess Warrington's probably the last of what we're going to call the the world British champions you know those guys who win belts off Brits and then just defend them against Brits and we call it a big domestic dust up 
until they fight world level guys from elsewhere and they lose that belt pretty quickly. And there are loads of these guys. Quig was one. Until the Santa Cruz fight, Frampton was in danger of being another one. I put Groves in that category as well, to be honest, as much as I love him. Groves is in that category. There are loads of these guys who are just world British champions and they're never truly world level because they never proved themselves at world level. But the real thing that we're not touching on here is did Hearn sabotage Warrington's career on purpose? Yes or no? I don't know the real answer, but there's some compelling evidence to suggest that he did. So the golden rule is, before I can save you, I must drown you. And so if Eddie wants to show the value that he is to Josh Warrington, he needs Josh to be on his knees. He doesn't want Josh being respected the way that he was for the wins that he had. Eddie's like, no, 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 no. I need to bring you down a level so I can build you up myself. And Eddie's got that controlling instinct in him. Let's be clear about this. Why else would you pick Lara? Why else would you find someone from Mexico? And let's be clear, DeZone have contacts over there. Hearn has an operation in Mexico because he does shows over there. And that's where they're looking to expand. And we know Canelo's looking to fight in Mexico at some point. So they're putting the infrastructure in there. You're telling me that no one at DeZone slash Matchroom knew who Lara was. I suspect that they picked Lara. They said, look, we need someone who's unheralded, but who can dig. I mean, who's got those rib-breaking punches? And they said, right, get this Lara in. You disguise him amongst them a number of names that are hard and probably more hassle than they're worth. And there, Bob's your uncle. You've got them to admit, <laughs> sorry, I'll rephrase that. You've got them to agree to a fight that you know is going to be dangerous, but you don't let that on. Yeah. So then what happens? Warrington loses. Now Eddie can say, look, this is how we're going to bring Josh back. Trust me, we're going to do it my way now. Bang, 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 bang. You'll end up fighting someone like a Tevin Farmer. They'll find a vacant belt for Josh, and Josh will fight for that, and then we'll talk about him being a legit world champ again. And then he'll lose that belt again because the same problems will afflict him. And meanwhile, Eddie will say, I did everything I could. Wouldn't surprise me if that was the case, but then this could all be a fluke, right? Because flukes happen all the time in boxing. It was sad. And the reason it was sad was Warrington was like the last of the Mohicans for us. You know, that guy that's just come up and won every belt on the way up. And we hoped he could have a run at world level where he could give us memorable nights and look at what's happened. He lost to a 22-year-old kid. Tragic. But I hope Josh comes back because I think Leeds needs boxing and British boxing needs a strong Josh Warrington. I can see him doing the British circuit maybe fighting these guys like Jazza Dickens and Lee Wood and so forth, building himself up before then going again. And let's see what's left of him. But yeah, that's my that's my take on the Warrington fight. I thought, oh, disaster from start to finish. And it's a lesson for anyone in boxing, man. You really have to look beyond box rec and you have to look beyond the notes your researchers give you. And sometimes you've got to look at the wider picture and go, why would you be giving me this fight? This doesn't make any sense in the current situation. Because if you ask this typical questions a five-year-old would ask, you'll realize a lot of these people are plotting and scheming and they rely on you being dumb and ignorant. Take care, guys, and tune in for the next episode. And, you know, it should be pretty quick now, now that boxing's starting to pick up. So take care. Yeah, you got my name in your mouth. I'm
must be your favorite flavor, you been taking it out. Hating on me, major man, I ain't breaking a sweat. Too focused, how I'm getting paid next, paper a check. What? You ain't making me vex, you're making yourself just look stupid. Now you hating the test. What I hate, this place was just making me progress until I'm late to rest. Fuck all my haters, yeah. Ooh, I don't like you, well, fuck you too. How much hate I go through, you ain't even got a clue. I know there's even people listening who hate on me too. You know what I gotta say to them, fuck you too. I don't chat people. Spread of what I've witnessed, cause spreading shit is vicious Especially when it's the man, them, leave it to your missus The only thing it leads to is you getting a split end He done that there and she done you Spreading rumours about people is something you don't do When they find out you chat, all their comments are hunt you, confront you Some don't talk, they'll just lump you, fuck you from there on You wanna talk my name, fuck it man, we're enemies I do my best to make your whole life a living how pussy you'll remember me Be your favorite flavor, you been taking it out. Hating on me, major man, I ain't breaking a sweat. Too focused, how I'm getting paid next, paper a check. What? You ain't making me vex, you're making yourself just look stupid. Now you hating the test. What I hate, this place was just making me progress until I'm late to rest. Fuck all my haters, yeah. Why do people start hating? Cause their life been elevating, they just stand still and they're jealous of what you're creating. Could be a career. People even hate on who you're dating, hate because you're straight, hate because you're happy who you're dating, hate because you're rated, hate because you're tracks are on a station, hate because you're content, they even hate it at your patient, I'm sure you gather by now, hating for slacks and waste men, who don't follow their own path, they stay chasing pavements, they could even have more than you, but they're hating and faking, it's like what they do, how you react to one of your haters in this life,